0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, as I mentioned, we are back in Mark chapter 3 in the Gospel of Mark. So um, if you've been attending here for a while, uh, you know that we've uh, kind of we did about two months of Mark, and then we took a, a week off and, and kind of did a uh, Some of a, a Christmas message there before Christmas. Then we had a prayer service over the, the New Year weekend, which was um, about 130, 140 people attended. That was a, a wonderful, beautiful time. And then last week, uh, we had the pleasure of, of hearing from Luke Middlesteader on a, a message on discipleship and wanted to do that before he went back. He's at seminary uh, at uh, Master Seminary out in California, and he was heading back. And so we wanted to give him an opportunity to, uh, to be able to preach, and so we're so grateful for him. But now we're going to jump back in to chapter 3. And so as we do that, I want to kind of get our minds back engaged uh, because I think it, the gospel should flow, and, and I want you to have a, a right foundation of thinking as we kind of dive into this. And so I want to go back and kind of review a few things with you. Uh, first and foremost, as you think about Mark writing the gospel, um, and it was John Mark, and, and, but we know that, that Mark really was kind of the author, but who was the, who was the guy behind the scenes that was really probably dictating to Mark? Peter, right. So really this is the gospel of Peter in some respects because Peter was present. He's the one that saw these things. Mark obviously was, was there to help write the gospel and maybe gather some other information from other first eyewitnesses, but, but Peter we think is the driving force in what was taking place here. And it kind of makes sense in some respects because The the gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel, and it is direct and to the point. And when I think about Peter, and just from reading scriptures and reading his letters and just kind of all the the conversation and and scripture about him, he was a very down-to-earth, kind of direct and to the point kind of guy. And so it's very much direct and to the point. And so I want you to think about, though, if if you're going to... That the gospels were written, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, so led by the Holy Spirit to be written down. But as Mark and Peter are writing, there's a a thought that the Holy Spirit is working in them about why to write and why to include what to include. Maybe don't think about that sometime. Jesus' ministry um, was probably three years long, we think. Now, not the whole time with the 12 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. Um, That first year or so, they probably weren't really Uh, They were disciples, maybe some of them were, but they really didn't come apostles. We're going to talk about that next week. That he finally takes 12 of the disciples and he asks them to kind of be his apostles. And so they're choosing from a a life, three years of ministry. What we have in Scripture is only a fraction of what Jesus actually did. And so they're, they're choosing things through the Holy Spirit's prompting to be able to put down and to be able to talk about. And one of the things I think is really important to understand about Mark, remember Mark is the most translated gospel in more languages, it's, it's the most, you know, published around the world because it was, it was direct into the point. And so if you think about Peter and Mark here for a second, they're writing to communicate something. When the gospel is written, it's to communicate something. And so the first thing that they're doing to communicate, if you look back at one and two, is kind of... Kind of get our brains back engaged here. it kind of talks briefly about Jesus' entry into ministry. He gets baptized by John the Baptist, and then he starts to pick up guys that're his disciples and we see that James and John and Peter and, and all these guys are starting to now follow him they're not disciples they're not apostles yet they're just followers of Jesus. They go back to fishing and then we see one day he goes to 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 the Sea of Galilee there and he sees them and he tells them to come and follow him and they leave because they know him. They've been probably following his teaching and now they begin to follow him and he begins to continue to teach. And then he ends up and he's in Capernaum which is in northern uh, Israel um, around the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was a city there where we believe Peter lived and Peter's uh, mother-in-law and he was kind of Jesus's base of ministry. And he shows up one day on a Sabbath, on a Saturday, in the synagogue. And while he's there, he begins to teach. In the synagogues, you were able to, um, to come in, and if you were a, a teacher or anybody that wanted to teach, and you could come in and you could kind of have the podium. And so Jesus takes that opportunity and begins to teach. And one of the things they quickly see is they're overwhelmed with how he's handling the text, how he speaks with authority. He, he just, and, and what we said of, probably a month ago, is, is that the reason he is is because he is the Word of God. He is the living Word of God. And so you could imagine what his, how he would handle the text, how he would handle the Torah and all the readings of the prophets, because he is reading about himself. He is talking about himself. He's, the plan is unfolding about who he is. And so clearly they, they noticed it. They see this. But not only does he speak with authority, he begins to heal people. He begins to cast out demons. Now, what do we start to see here? He's showing his authority over all things. Now, notice we're in the first two chapters of the gospel. So if you're taking the the gospel of Mark and you're taking it to a a people group that doesn't know and you want to talk about who Jesus is, what's the first thing you need to get out there? This is who he is. He has power over all things. He can heal anyone. He can cast out demons. He He has power over the demon world. He has power over the physical world. He has authority Because now everything else that's going to happen in the gospel is going to be foundationally based on that. Because if he doesn't have authority, then nothing else really matters. But if he has all authority, and so that's what we begin to see. And not only does he heal just people that are sick and, and diseased, but he heals a leper, which was like unclean. You weren't even supposed to be within six feet of them. And, and, and he heals him. And, and lepers were considered walking dead, and Jesus heals this man. Right? He comes and says, Lord, I, I know you can do it, but are you willing? And Jesus says, yes, I'm willing. And he does it in this act of compassion, and he heals him. We get into chapter 2. We see this account of when these four friends of a, of a guy... With their faith, they tear the roof open and because Jesus is in a home and he's, he's teaching. And they just know that if they can get their friend before, before Jesus, he'll be able to heal them. And so they lowered this man down, their friend down before Jesus. And, and Jesus, there's a, there's a conversation that ensues and he ultimately heals the man. And he says, pick up your mat and, and, and you know, walk. And, and he does. And we're all pretty amazed about that. And I, I think that's pretty incredible. But that's not really what was incredible about that event. What was incredible about that event, if you remember correctly, is that Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. That is amazing. Yes, it is amazing to be able to to heal someone, and and that's, that's incredible for us. But if you understand where the Jews were and where we are as a people, for thousands of years they were killing animals. They knew they had a sin problem. They were waiting on a Messiah. They knew they had a sin problem, and so there was a sacrificial system. This guy comes along. And he says, I have the power to forgive sins. We and I don't probably understand the weight of what he just said there in the context of what he who he's talking to. The Pharisees are there and they are appalled at this moment. This is this is heresy to them. And and so this is kind of where they're at in their head. And then what do we see? We see that he eats with sinners. There's the, what we call the Matthew party. He goes, and Matthew invites him after he calls Matthew. And, and Matthew's a tax collector, and he brings people to, to Matthew's house, or Matthew invites him over, and he's, he's friends with him. And once again, the Pharisees are just livid about what he's doing here. And then right before we ended chapter 2, about a month ago, we see that Jesus is walking in a field don't know what kind of field could be grain some type of grain maybe wheat we don't know and he's with his disciples and they begin to pick it's the sabbath and they begin to pick grain and they begin to eat it and the pharisees once again are livid they're working on the sabbath because they're picking grain and so he begins to have this conversation with them and what he basically begins to tell them is that he has power over the sabbath Okay. If if forgiving sins didn't push these guys over the edge, telling him or telling them that he has power over the Sabbath. And what does he say? Let's let's look at that. In Mark chapter 2 verse 27 and 28. At the end of chapter 2 of Mark, it says, and he said to them, "The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is lord even of the Sabbath." He's not just saying he has power, he's saying he's Lord over it. He is God over the Sabbath. He's established it. And they are now absolutely tormented by him. And why is that? Because I believe, and what you're going to see as we kind of unpack this, is that they were losing their authority. They've been waiting for years and years and years, all the sacrificial system, all the prophecy. The Jews were waiting for the Messiah. He's here, and it's not like he's, he's trying to overthrow anything. He's just here healing people. He's casting demons out. He's, he's forgiving people. What is wrong with that? But yet, they don't want it. Why? Because their hearts are hard. We see all the way into the Old Testament the hardness of heart in humanity, in our rebellion. And and even when we know the truth, right, we see it. And here their hearts are hard and they don't want it. They don't want him to be doing these things because they, whether they can articulate it in their mind or not, they know that something is going to happen. He's going to be the thing. He's going to get the praise. He's going to get the attention. And we're not going to have it anymore. And so they begin to find a way to, to take him down. I mean, we're only in the third chapter, and you can see this this thing that's already happened in their hearts that they want to do this. And he's not even done anything wrong, he's only been doing good things. And so, that brings me to your big idea for this morning Jesus exposes a heart issue. Jesus exposes a heart issue. So, in the first couple chapters, Jesus is establishing his authority or you say Mark and and Peter establishing Jesus' authority. He can heal, he can cast out demons, he can forgive sins, he's Lord of the Sabbath, he has all of this. And now what Jesus is doing, he's coming on the scene, and he's intentionally doing things on the Sabbath to bring this issue to the surface. Why? Because now he's gonna hold basically a mirror up to them, and he says, I wanna show you who you are. I'm gonna show you who you are. You don't don't care about this man. You don't love him. You don't even love me. You just love yourself. And you think, boy, you know, we want to say, get him, Jesus. That's right, absolutely. Why do you think this is in here? Because if it was just about them, we wouldn't need to know that. It's in here because that's our problem too. We have hearts that want what they want. It's our saying around here, right? Why do we do what we do? Because we want what we want. That's a heart issue, right? We don't want him sometimes. We want what we want. And you're seeing this, what Jesus is trying to tell them is that this is the thing I see in you, right? This, and so as we go through this text, that's what I want you to understand. He's, he's intentionally taking them someplace and doing this miracle on the Sabbath to reveal the heart issue, There's purpose in what he's doing. It just didn't wasn't a random thing. He just happened to be at the synagogue that day, and this guy has a... You know, Jesus could have healed that guy after the sun went down, after the Sabbath. He could have healed him the next day. He could have healed him on Friday. It wasn't like this was an emergency or anything. The guy just has a withered hand. It's not working, whatever that looks like. And he chooses to do it on the Sabbath because Jesus is doing something to make a point. And Mark and Peter are trying to drive that point home for you and me thousands of years later as we read the text. So don't miss the point. So Mark chapter 3 verse 1 and 2. It says again, he entered the synagogue. Now, we don't know if this is the same day. Maybe, maybe he was out walking in the field with his apostles, or his disciples, and they come back and they enter the synagogue. We don't, we don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's a different Sabbath day, but it's, it's right there in Capernaum. We know that he hasn't left Galilee yet, and so whether it's the same day, we're not really sure. But he's in the synagogue. It says again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, a couple things about this. As I mentioned to you a month ago, there were strict rules over the Sabbath. And I kind of told you what some things they could do. You could do one stitch, but you couldn't do more than one stitch. That was considered work. You could not heal people. Now, you could give birth, and you could help a woman give birth because that was a necessity. You could stop someone from dying if it was imminent, but you could not then treat them beyond that. You would basically triage them and wait until the Sabbath ended, and then you could tend to them. Only in cases of death or possible death could you begin to work to heal them. And we see this, and we know this, because... Several, a couple hundred years later, uh, the Jews put together what's called the, the Mishnah. It's a, it's a document or a, 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 a group of writings from over 150 sources of rabbis and all sorts of things that kind of articulated the oral law that had been in existence even back in the first century, maybe before even, even before Christ's birth just a little bit. And so he begins to lay all these things out, and, and, and they're not able to, to do these things. And so Jesus comes on the scene. It's the end of chapter 2, and, and it's like you can't eat some grain if you're hungry. You can't pick grain to eat. And so he, he begins to talk about all this, and he just tries to set them straight. He says, look, the Sabbath was made for man. It's, it's, it's for rest. It, you've got it so backwards here. And so he's beginning to, to ridicule them. And so now he's holding this up, and he's doing this on purpose, and he's showing that the hardness of their heart, they don't care about this guy. They don't care that his, his hand is withered. Notice that they don't say, well, Jesus, we love this guy, but can you wait until evening? No, that's not what they're saying. They They want to accuse him. They want to trick him. What's interesting here, though, is it says that, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. What does that statement let you know? That they believed that Jesus could heal him. Right? They knew that he could do it. They were just waiting to see if it was going to happen or not. Is he going to do it? Is he going to push our buttons? Is he going to, are we going to be able to accuse him? They were almost wanting him to do it because they want to accuse him. They want to get rid of him. And they think if he will just do this and violate the Sabbath, we can have him on this. Okay, maybe he talked us out about the grain one. Maybe he convinced us maybe that we were wrong there, but we can get him on this one. If he will just heal this guy's hand, we can get him. Do you see the hardness of heart there? They don't care. They don't care. They want to accuse him. You know, I mean, I, I see a lot of these things in my own heart at times. When, when, when what we want begins to slip away, what we think we deserve sometimes, uh, what we just really want, we will do anything to kind of claw and scratch to keep it. We will, we will break relationships. We will, some people lie Some people, you know, intimidate people to keep what we want. And that's the problem. And that problem didn't go away after the first century. That problem is here and alive and well in you and me. And so, what do we see here? If Jesus is exposing the heart issue, what's the first thing in our heart that we see is that our hearts can be accusatory? Our hearts can be accusatory even when we know we're wrong. Now, maybe you can't relate to this. I've had arguments with my wife, and I know I'm wrong, and I don't say uncle. And I will debate to win, even though somewhere in my spirit I know that I'm probably not right about this. If she was in here, she would say, amen. She, she, we've had this discussion for years. I'm working on it. It's because I want to be right. I do. And in that moment, my flesh rises up, and I just want to be right, and I get in the passion of the debate, and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to think clearly. I just want what I want here, and I want to win, and I can win in this conversation. I can think faster. I can do this, and I can win this debate. And then like two days later, I'll come back to her and say, you know, you know, you know. Um, You were right the other day. (laughs) Said what'd you you say? I said you you know right, because I've come back down. I know that's my flesh. It's not right. It's not good. It's not God honoring. It's not loving to my wife. She's part of my sanctification process. (laughs) But that's that's just how we're wired. And I don't want you to walk away this morning as we go through the rest of this and think, oh yeah, those Pharisees, man, they were horrible people and they were this way and they had hard hearts. No, he's talking about us. It's talking about us. And you need to begin to think about where in your life you've seen these tendencies in your flesh. Verse three and four. It says, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, so he gets this guy up. Now, I don't know what must have been going through that man's head. You know, hopefully it was, hey, man, Jesus is probably going to heal me. That's awesome. But I don't know. You know, if one of you had a, an ailment like that and I called you up in front of everybody and you had no idea what's going to happen, I'm sure that wouldn't be very comfortable for you. And, but he's calling this man up and he's, he's bringing this, this man he has compassion on, his empathy for, and he's bringing him up to kind of say, okay, I, I want to show you the object of your hardness of heart. This man here who, who you should be loving and caring for and want to be healed you don't want to do that and so I'm going to make it very clear to you who he is I'm going to put a, a face with this and he brings him up and he said he said to the man come here and he said to them is it lawful on the sabbath to do good or to do harm to save life or to kill but they were silent one of the things that I, I really appreciate about this, this text here, and that I'm, I'm working on, I've been working on for quite some time, and I would encourage you to work on this, the ability to ask really good questions when you're talking to people, especially when you're in disciple conversations or, or spiritual conversations. Because if, if you're talking to someone about they're a believer and maybe they're, they're struggling with sin, um, or maybe they're not a believer, they've not been born again yet, and you're trying to share the gospel with them, you maybe have five minutes. You may have 10 minutes. You don't have time to, to do everything. You're not going to be the car salesman and close the deal. You know, you, you just got to talk to them. But the most powerful thing you can do is ask a question that will stick with them for the next five days. And they will not be able to get it out of their head. And they're going to be wrestling. The Holy Spirit's going to be working in them. And they're going to wrestle with that. I can tell you, I can't tell you how many times that in, in counseling or in, in the, the ministries that we do, The key is asking those type of questions. And Jesus is the master at this. Notice how he phrases this. Is it lawful? Now he's he's saying, okay, you're telling me that things are unlawful. You're all about the law. Is it lawful on the Sabbath, so he's identifying the Sabbath, to do good or to do harm? And then he ratchets it up and he, he says, basically, to save life or to kill, now, they're scratching their heads probably thinking, okay, how do we answer this? If we say that it's lawful to do that, then we're saying that, that what we've been teaching is wrong. Even if they know they're wrong, they don't want to say that, so they're not going to. If they say, no, it's, um, it's not lawful, everybody standing there is saying, okay, you don't care about us? You would rather us perish? You would rather us be crippled? You don't want that? Is that really what the God of Abraham wants? Is it us to be crippled for life? And you don't want to heal on the Sabbath? After Jesus just got done explaining to them just earlier that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man, they're between a rock and a hard place here. They don't know what to say. And so they say nothing. And so what does that mean? Their lack of response is their answer. And that answer is, We're wrong, but we're not going to tell you that. Because if we were right, we would argue about it. We would tell you that you're wrong. We would tell you that it is unlawful for you to do this. But they're in this place and they're saying they just can't do it. They have no argument here. And once again, Jesus does it on the Sabbath to bring this conversation to a head. He's trying to show them, and not just them, we're going to see that, The hardness and the condition of their heart, their error. Now, if you go, if you flip over, you get your Bibles, you want to flip over to Matthew chapter 12, verse 10 through 12. Matthew chapter 10, excuse me, Matthew chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. Here we believe is the same historical event that's taking place. But Matthew is looking at it from a kind of a different view, and you're going to hear that what's What's documented here, what Matthew's written down, is just a little bit different. Jesus says a few different things, and you say, Well, does that mean that the gospels don't match? No, because they're just recording things. The conversation could have been 10, 15 minutes long. We don't know. There could have been lots of things going back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees. And and Mark and Peter are writing down something they remember, and Matthew is writing down something. And so both of these things could have easily been said, and I believe they were. But it's the same context. Matthew 12, 10. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? See the the similarity, it's all there. They want to accuse him. They're trying to set him up. They're they're trying to trap him. He said to them, here's another one of these questions. Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. So it's it's one of those questions like, okay, tell me, you wouldn't do that? And they know they would. And so they're either gonna have to lie or they're gonna have to agree that he's right. And then he says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? And so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He has just boxed them in again. Because he says, look, we're killing lambs. We don't kill people. We're not, we're not doing that. And we, we would all admit that the human life is, is more important. We're the image bearer. We're the, we're the special creation of God. God has given us sheep for our food and for sacrificial purposes and is and as, as a blessing to us, but, but they are not us. And so if you would do that for your sheep, surely you would do that for us. He boxes them in. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. It says, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. This is, a, this is an incredible glimpse of, of who Jesus is and, and his heart. He's angry. What do you mean he's angry? Does he does he get violent? No, it's, that's not that's not kind of anger. Scripture says don't let, you know, don't don't sin in your anger. There's only a couple places in scripture where it talks about Jesus having this emotion. Once is when he goes into the temple and he flips the tables and the money changers and he's upset because he's he's angry about how people are treating the temple and treating God and, and making a mockery of it. Here, even maybe more personal, he's there and he's angry. Here's a man. The creation, the created image bearer, and it's it's crippled, or it's, it's a hand that's withered, and he wants to help this man. He has compassion. And these men do not have compassion for this man. They are arrogant, self-centered, hard-hearted. And it says he was angry. Anger is a is a righteous anger is a good thing. Um it's, 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 a, it's, a dis, it's a discomfort, it's a, it's a friction that we have with things that are not right. And, and we want to be moved by those things. We want to say, no, that's not right and I want to do something about it. I need to step up, I need to, I need to help fix that, I need to right that ship. Think about maybe when you're in, in school, in high school, and, and you're with a group of kids and, and somebody is getting picked on. And, and they're being ridiculed, they're being bullied. And you're sitting there, and you know that it is not right. No one is stepping up. Everybody is staying quiet. And you know what? They probably all believe it's not right, except for maybe the person that's doing the picking on. And my guess is even they know it's not right. And no one says anything. Because you don't have enough. There needs to be some disdain for that. We have to say, no, that's not right. I'm gonna stand up. And that's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He's not taking a poll on what he should do. He's not thinking, he's just, the right thing is to stand up. I don't, it's gonna cost him one of these days. It's gonna cost him his life. But he steps up and he says, no. No, we have to do this. And so he has this, he grieves their hardness of heart. He's looking at them and he's saying, this is my people. And look at what they've become. Look at their hardness of heart. He's grieving over them. He doesn't want them to be like this. I mean, we could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6 and see that the Lord grieving over his creation of man there. Why do you think he flooded everything? He saw that the hearts, the men were exceedingly wicked. And so he starts over with one family. It's the same picture. He's grieving over them, over their hardness of heart. But then I I love it. He says, he said to the man, like he's grieving, he's angry, and I think he looks at the man and says, I'm going to show them something, and it's going to be beautiful in my glory, and it's going to be good for you, even though I'm angry at these men. Stretch out your hand. And he stretches it out, and it was restored. It's like Jesus is saying, you don't see it. Don't you see it? (laughs) It's right in front of you. And I want to say, we want to say once again, like, do you see that in our world? Do you see the hardness of heart in people? Do you see it? Yeah, we always want to see it in other people, but do you see it in yourself? Do you look at yourself and do you see your hardness of heart? I do. In fact, I will tell you, this, this passage was very convicting for me because there are things that, that happen that I'm just so callous to anymore that they there. They're injustices or the things that are not right or people that are not treating right or, or all sorts of things, and I can get callous to it. And one of the challenges in our world today is that we have so much information. We have so much knowledge of so much, we're overwhelmed. We can't fix everything. God's not asking us to fix everything. I know so much about what's happening in, in people's lives, and, and I can't fix them. I know what's going on in the world because I can read the news and, and I can see everything that's happening all over the world. I can see the tragedy in, in Gaza and in Israel and, 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 you know, Ukraine and Germany, or excuse me, Ukraine and Russia. It's just everywhere, Somalia and Yemen, and I am keep up on all that stuff, and there's just tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. I can see all the, the social turmoil here in the United States and, and all the, the poverty and I'm like, I, I, I can't get upset about all that because I will, I will implode. <laughs> and so there's this, there's this what do, how do I handle that? What do I do with this? I mean, I, I should care and I do care, but it's so overwhelming. I can't really care because I can't get my mind around all of it. And so what's the answer to that? The answer is, is just take a step. Just take a step. Do one thing. I, I, I remember... Um, when, when we got our house paid for um, by god 's grace, we were able to pay it off a few years ago and, and so that freed up some money and The first thing we had to do is we had to say okay we have to we need to find some places to t- some ministries to be able to invest in because if we don 't we 're going to spend this money on ourselves and it, that's not really we don 't want to do that don 't want to spend it all on ourselves and so we decided there 's a few ministries that we are involved with here at the church and and outside the church like target Dayton and things and, and we um, we support some of those ministries. And if, if you were to look at him and say, okay, Raleigh, that that's, that's only $30 a month. <laughs> like, you know. But it was a step for us. Right? I did something. Terry and I did something. You don't want to have paralysis and do nothing. That's the problem with too much information in our world. It paralyzes us. We think, well, then I, I can't fix everything, so I'm just not going to do anything. No, that's not the right answer. The answer is to do something. Do something. That $30 does something. And over the year, it's $360. It does something. If everybody, if everybody in the church adopted, when I say the church, I mean the global, the the church in the United States. If everybody in the church in the United States that could, and I say could, like, you know, was, was able, adopted a child, we would end homeless, you know, We would end children without families. It'd be over. But because we're so paralyzed and we're so hard-hearted at times, we don't want to do those things. It's all about us, and so we don't do those things. And I'm not saying, look, we have an adopted child. I'm not saying we should all going to rush out and do that. But there are some churches that put an emphasis on that and encourage their congregation to go do that. If we want to be changed, if we want to be the gospel in action, we need to do those things. And I'm not saying we all need to do that, but it's something. Do something. Start somewhere. I mean, I remember even when we were um, first started going to church 28 years ago, my wife and I, and we started at Salem Church of God down the street here, and, and we had not been to church and, and when I was a kid, and I'd been out of church for 10, 10 15 years, and I remember the first day we get there, Dr. Sebastian, who was not there long after we got there, he's doing a, a message on giving. <laughs> Go figure. First Sunday, right? And he's got this suitcase up there, and it's got all this cash in it, and he's stacking it on the podium, right? It was a little different. Um, and, and I bet you it was all $1 bills, but anyway, and he, he builds this little pile over here to kind of represent like, you know, our offering to God and our, our tithe and our offering and, and, um, and I'm looking at that like, I, no way, you know, we're just not in a place to do that. And what was so impactful to me and to my wife is he took one little tiny pack and he laid it over here and he says, but some of you aren't doing anything. And if you do that, And you do it faithfully. That's where you start. Now, I couldn't say no to that. (laughs) It was one of those things, that those questions like, can you do that? And in my head, I'm like, yeah, I can do that, but I don't want to do that. And so we get home, and a few days later, my wife says, we're going to do that. I'm like, okay. (laughs) And a few months later, my wife says, on a Saturday-like, she'll say, well, tomorrow, I just want to let you know we're increasing our giving because we can. Okay. Now, my heart was not always in that. I'll be honest with you. And I was so grateful for my wife. We would not be where we are today in our stewardship and our obedience if it wouldn't have been at that time in my life without my wife. But you start somewhere. You, You do something, right? You do something. Because otherwise, your heart will turn cold and it'll be selfish now this idea, I just want to remind you here a little bit, this, this idea of the heart, and he says your hardness of heart, because I want to, I want to frame this up for you. Sometimes in scripture, the word heart, uh, the Greeks kind of looked at that as like the, the gut of somebody, like how you feel, your emotions, what, what kind of makes you feel the way you do, and that can be your heart, that's what they kind of think about But there's a lot of times in Scripture that heart is synonymous with with mind. In other words, your heart, the way you think. The heart of something is the way you think. It's not your gut. And here in the text, I believe that he's talking about their mind, right? They have a hardness of heart. They don't want to change the way they think. It's not just a feeling. They don't want to change the way they think. They don't want to let Jesus have this authority in their life. And so what do we see here in the text is that not only... Do our hearts are accusatory, but our hearts can be stubborn, right? Our hearts can just be stubborn. We we just we're so desperately about what we want that we won't give in, right? We just won't give in. There's a quote here I want to read to you from James R. Edwards. He's the commentator for the Gospel According to Mark. He puts it this way, he says, The greatest enemy of divine love and justice is not opposition, not even malice, but hardness of heart and indifference to divine grace, to which not even the disciples of Jesus are immune. Okay, I want you to think about this, and I want you to, let's talk this out. The greatest enemy of divine love, God's love, and justice is not opposition, so he's saying, okay, there's a challenge to God in his love and his divine goodness. There's a challenge in the world of it. And, and what is it? There's an opposition. And who, who is the opposition? Well, you could say people that are, um, you know, obviously very opposed and, and, and almost contentious against it. And quickly our minds would go, well, the spiritual world, there's, there's a spiritual war. And that's absolutely true. And, and he's saying, so there's spiritual war, there's demons. And, and what, the, what, what he's saying here is the commentator is saying, look, yes, that's true, but there's something greater than that in opposition, than opposition and malice, and it is the hardness of the human heart. That's more of an issue than anything else. And here's how I look at that. I don't need a spiritual being, a demon or, or something to convince me or to move me to sin my flesh already is once that so much of the time we over spiritualize things we think oh well there must be just demon demon this and demon that look i'm not saying that that's true in the world that is true in the world but by and large i believe that scripture supports this i believe that we're not wrestling against demons we're wrestling against the sinfulness of our flesh Our flesh wants what it wants. I don't need anything. I want to overeat. I want to be, you know, have these things. I want to be selfish. I want these things. I want my marriage the way I want it to be. I want my wife to do the things I want her to do. I want you as a congregation to do what I want you to do. I mean, that's just in me because it's in my flesh. And I sin frequently that way. There's no spiritual warfare going on here. There's no demon. There's, Satan is not sitting on my shoulder. I just, I want that. And that's what Paul is trying, or excuse me, that's what, what I think Mark and, and Peter are trying to explain here is that this is a condition from, from the garden. This is, It's with us all the time. Yes, are there people that are possessed? Yes, we're gonna see that at the end of the text. Jesus deals with that. But he's addressing the Pharisees. He's not saying that they're possessed. He's just saying that they have a hard heart. So I'm going to read a couple of scriptures, and there's so many. I just just limit to a few. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. It says, there are dark, they are darkened in their understanding. Here he's, he's writing to the church at Ephesus. It says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Okay, is he saying that they're ignorant? No. He's saying they're ignorant because of their hardness of heart. What's he mean by that? I believe what he's saying there in the context, he says, look, they don't want to believe They're not searching the depths of Scripture. They're not running and and getting to know God more and and dealing with these theological things and diving into the truth of the gospel. And so because they're ignorant, the reason they're ignorant is because they're hardness of heart. If their heart wasn't hard, they would do those things. If they would believe the truth, they would pursue these things. But they won't. Romans chapter 1, right? They know the truth. It says they, we, know the truth but we choose to believe the lie. Why? Because we want what we want. That's what Paul says. That's the whole point of Romans 1. They were darkened in their understanding. See, it's a a belief. It's an understanding. There's, There's truth out there. We're darkened. Why? Because we're alienated from the life of God because of our ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of our heart. If we would just give and we would just say, no, Lord, Show me where to go. Show me what you want to do. I will be obedient. Just show me. But most of us don't do that. We will, we are, our, our feet are stuck. Paul goes on and, excuse me, Mark goes on in 16, chapter 16 later, here at the end of the gospel. This is after the resurrection and, and, and Jesus has now appeared to them. And, and here we see this. So he appears to them, I think, in a... In, in their home or in the upper room and he says Mark 16 14 it says after he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table okay so he's, he's coming back from the dead he's appearing to them now here's a moment you would think this would be a joy-filled moment right that Jesus is going to come in his glorified body he's going to come to the 11 and he's going to say man I'm risen it's finished I'm going to give you power and let's celebrate guys what does he say? It says, after he appeared to the leaven themselves as they were reclining at the table. So they're hanging out and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So what's the picture here? They'd been with him for over two years. They had seen him bring people back from the dead. He had healed the sick. He had fed thousands of people. He had told them he was going to die and be resurrected from the dead. He did all of these things. The women, Mary and some of the women, Simone, see the empty tomb. They come back and they tell the apostles, we've seen him. These are people they love and they trust and they will not believe them. Why? Because Jesus says saying your heart is hard with unbelief. You, you, you just, unbelief. Why would you not believe them? And I would say, while, while that was, must have been incredible to, to be able to see the empty tomb and to, to see maybe Jesus in the resurrected form, that's absolutely, I can't imagine that. We have so much more knowledge than anyone in all of history. In fact, I would argue that in the last 50 years, the Christian has more knowledge textual things and the evidence of Christianity and of Christ and the resurrection than any generation before us, by far. Do you know what it would have been like 200 years ago to try and do a Bible study? I was on my my computer last night. I could look up every place heart was listed within a matter of seconds, like 700 times. I could see the Greek. I could see all of it. I could see it in different translations. I could see everything. I can cross-reference everything, Do you think they could do that? No. We have the truth of the gospel right in front of us. It should make a difference in our life. We should be moved by it. We should be humbled by it. We should be, I mean, when we come in to worship, when I say we come to this place, worship is all about how we live our life, but when we come to this place and worship corporately, many of us are coming because we want something right? We, we want a certain, I want, I want to be entertained. I, I want certain types of music. I, I want my song that I like. I want, you know, this or that. I want this person to be preaching or that person to be preaching. I want this kind of coffee. I want that kind of thing. You're coming, we're coming as consumers. What about just getting up in the morning and praising God that you're going to get to come and be with other believers and kneel down and worship our King and our God? and come and say, I just, I just want to worship you. I don't, I don't care who's preaching. I don't care if the music's any good or not. I mean, obviously we want to make it good, but what's the point? What should be driving us is the gospel, is the beauty of our King and our Lord. And so I would think that if Jesus could appear today, he would admonish us for our unbelief. Do, we, do you come in in the morning and, and just realize that, man, I'm going to come and I'm going to, I'm going to worship Jesus this morning. I I'm, mean, I'm he he's alive in my heart. And I'm going to unite with other believers in the body of Christ. And we're going to sing to him and we're going to praise him today. And man, I can't think of anything else I'd like to do. No, every one of us is probably saying, when's this guy going to be done? I get it. I've been there. I'm not saying I don't do that too. Right? You may be thinking it right now. And so what happens is our, art become, our heart becomes an idol factory. It's pumping out things all the time, giving us other things to worship, food, jobs, careers, kids, marriage, all those type of things. And it's, it's waging war in us. Romans 2, 5. Here's the problem if your heart is so hard that it doesn't allow the gospel in. It says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, mean unrepentant, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul's just being real clear. He says, look, if you want to worship all those other things and you don't want to, and you want your heart to be hard and you want to refuse the truth of the gospel and you know it's true but you don't, you don't want to do it, then I just want you to know you're storing up wrath because there's going to be a day come that God is going to come and he's going to judge And those not found in Christ will experience the wrath of God. And we will be guilty because God is going to say, he's going to unroll, he's going to open our eyes, and he's going to say, look at all the truth that I showed you. Overwhelmingly so, in creation, in all sorts of things, in scripture, in prophecy, you name it. It's going to be unfolded, and we will not be able to dispute it. We will be silent, and we will be guilty. And all because our heart is hard. I want to encourage you outside of this morning to read Luke chapter 13, 16 through, or 10 through 16. Luke 13, 10 through 16. It's another place where Jesus confronts a religious leader. And it's very similar about their hardness of heart. Mark's 3, 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, now to destroy him. So they, this has happened. He's healed the withered hand. Now he's, he's saying, okay, what are we going to do now? And so he sees that the Pharisees are, are going to what would say the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? We're not exactly sure. I mean, we kind of know some. Herodians were followers, possibly a political party or maybe just followers of Herod, or the, the family of Herod, because there's multiple kings, right now Herod Antipas is kind of over. He's a, he's a Jewish kind of um, leader, king, underneath Rome that kind of oversees parts of the Jewish kingdom. He is not a, a really faithful religious man, so the Pharisees and Herodians don't get along with each other. Because the Herodians are very much about Greek life, having all the goodness of life and all the pleasures of life. That's what they want. They want power. They want the things. The Pharisees, even though in some respects they want that too, they're very politically legalistic. They want this. They want a very, uh, a very certain way of living the Christian, the, excuse me, the Jewish faith. And so they don't like each other. But do you notice that they partner up here? Why? Because they both don't want to lose the power that they have. And so they're willing to partner up with each other to take down Jesus. To take down the guy that has done nothing wrong, who loves people, is compassionate for people, wants to forgive sins, wants to heal people, wants to cast out demons, can do those things. And they want to partner up. And why? Because I think they don't want to lose their power. They don't want to lose their way of life because their hearts are hard. And so what do we see here? Not only our hearts can be accusative and our hearts can be stubborn, but our hearts can be wicked. Our hearts can be wicked. Wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9, Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? And I read that sometimes. I've had some conversation with a lot of people lately. Oops, excuse me. A lot of people lately, and, and I'll, um, we'll be talking about something. Let's say it comes up that somebody's struggling with something, and they're just, they're just appalled by some sin that they're aware of. And they'll say, "I just can't believe that people would do something like that." And I don't know. I don't know about you, but I'm just not appalled. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm not surprised by any sin. Not one. I don't care what you tell me. I don't. I'm not. i mean, i have read. I've looked at Scripture. I've read. I. You know what? And I know my own heart. I know what, what the human flesh is capable of. I've been there. I've, I've known people that have went way beyond what most people would think. It's like, why would you do that? And everybody wants to think logically about that. It just doesn't make sense that they would do that. Well, no, sin doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, because the flesh is leading. The spirit is not leading. If, if you're a Christian, yes, it doesn't make sense. But I would just ask you to look at your own heart. Are you always obedient? Do you always honor God with your language, with, your, with how you treat people? No, probably not. And yet there could be someone that's more obedient than you that could look at you and say, I can't believe why they would do such a thing. And so we've got to be real careful. Yes, we should admonish people. And yes, we should, we should not be for those type of things. But, but we have to understand that this, this sin is in our nature. The heart is deceitful above all things. We all are there and desperately sick. Mark chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. So now I believe he's going over to the Sea of Galilee. And a great crowd followed them from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that was going on, all that he was doing, they came to him. Now I'm going to step out and make a thought here on this. So I would make the argument here, first and foremost, what is, what is the apostle, what is the Mark and, and Peter trying to show us here? Is that this thing that Jesus, who he is, is not an isolated thing. This isn't something that just little town. No, Jesus is well known around the known world at this point. People are coming from all over the place. They're trying to, they've said he's authority, he can do all these things. He said he's God, and everybody is noticing this, not just a few of us. This is not just a few of us that have come together and said, hey, this is a really incredible guy that's doing this. And yeah, he's done a few things with us, but no, everybody is being aware of this. They're, they're saying his, his influence is, is going beyond borders now, right? I will also make another comment about this that I think that while these people want to get to him, they're not wanting to get to him because they love him. They're not wanting to get to him because they think their sins can be forgiven. Now, maybe somebody is in there. I think this people, this group, is still wanting what they want. Now, what they want is good. They want to be healed. I get that. But many people were wanting something for themselves. And so even in, the, even in our Christian life, we have to be careful that it doesn't turn all about us. I mean, I don't, I don't think these people are believers. In fact, what we see in the Gospels is at some point there's so many disciples, so many people following Jesus that proclaim to follow him and to love him that some days he just gets up and he says, look, you, you gotta, uh, in fact, he talks about communion. He says, you gotta eat my flesh and drink my blood. Why does he say that? Because he's trying to freak them out so that they will leave. And he says, unless you hate your father and mother, yes, even your own children, pick up your cross and follow me. You cannot be my disciple. And it says a bunch of people left. Because he's saying, look, you're not coming for me. Not, you don't love me. And I think in this group of people, there's a heart issue even with these people. Not in the same way it is with the Pharisees. But I don't think their heart has been regenerated yet. Verse 9 and 10. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they would crush him. And they had healed and he had healed many so all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. It was all about getting what they wanted. And I'm not saying what they, don't, what they want is not good. I'm just saying that we have to be even careful when we want good things because we have to make it sure it's in the context that we love Christ above all things. Verse 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now, there's a couple different thoughts on that. Some would argue that the reason that they cried out that you are the Son of God because the fact that Jesus is in their presence, they cannot help but acknowledge him as Lord. I like that view. I think that's, that's a very powerful view. There are others in that historically would say, well, one of the things in that culture, if you would call someone by name, you would basically kind of... Um, Level the playing field on authority. And so my father was in sales most of his life. And I will tell you that um, one of the things my dad taught me was, he says, Raleigh, if, if you want in business, if you want to level the playing field, call people by their first name. Don't call them by Mr. or Mrs. He says, because as soon as you do that, you're giving them the higher authority in your life. And so some commentators would argue that what the demons were really doing was saying, we know you, Jesus. We know who you are. Like, you, you, you're not special, right? So I don't know where you'd land on that. We don't know. But those are some of the thoughts there on that text. All right. So what's the takeaway for this morning? If our heart is wicked, if our heart is accusatory, if it's stubborn, and, and the Scriptures hold a mirror up to us and show us who we are, not just the disciples or, and not just the Pharisees, but all of us. So what's the takeaway? We need God to transform our hearts, right, to give us a new heart, right, to give us a new heart. We we just can't get there on our own. So here we're going to take you back to Ezekiel chapter 36. Here he's talking to Israel, 36, 25 to 27. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what we need. We need God to give me a new heart. As Christians, we believe that's taken place. When we're born again, we've been given a new heart. We've been restored. We've been brought back to life, have been reconciled back to God. And he works within us to continue to sanctify us and to take us through challenging situations and refine us and, and test our heart at times. I'll leave you with this passage from Psalm 95, verse six through eight. The psalmist says, O come and let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are his people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I don't know where all of you are in your walk with the Lord. Whether you're a born again believer and you have a relationship with Christ or you have yet to um, be transformed by God. If if you've not, if you're not in a relationship with Christ, if you've not been born again, I would ask that you soften your heart. That you ask God to save you. You've heard truth. You've heard the gospel. You know it. Now is a time not to harden your heart, because if you do. Truth will pass you by, and you're just your heart is getting callous. You have to stop and say no i I, I need to say this, I need to acknowledge the truth, and I know that 's hard it 's hard to say yeah there 's there's, there's a god and i 'm a sinner, and i 'm guilty, especially when we 've been building this wall around a heart for all this time i 'll give you a small example as I close when I was um several years ago I you know I I I had this thing in me and and I got home one night from from work and I had to go back I was I wasn't a pastor yet and I I was having to go back to a church meeting and I got home and and my wife and I were all good mood I mean you know some days you're not on the same page and we were on the same page it was all great and we were laughing and 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 she looks out the window and there's a tarp hanging out on on a piece of uh, playground equipment that I hadn't put away for well a while um a couple weeks maybe and uh she said something about, would you put that away? And instantly, my heart went hard. And I got snappy, bitter. And I made some comment, and then I had to go. I was angry, and she was angry, and I got in the car, and I left. I'm on Pleasant Plain Road right over here. It's only, I live only like three or four miles from here. And I had a flip phone. That will give you a date where, where I'm at. So I had a flip phone. And the Holy Spirit begins to convict me and says, Your heart is hard. You're wrong. You need to call her. Mm-mm. Man, it was like big time wrestling in the car. I did not want to do that. And finally, I remember flipping the phone open and thinking, Am I going to do this? And I dialed that number, putting it up to my head, and I hear my wife say, Hello? I was wrong. I'm sorry, I should have put the tarp away. And all of a sudden, the burden lifted, and I was filled with joy. Like, why wouldn't I want that? But everything in my flesh didn't want to do it. That's what I want for you. And, and to accept Christ, to, to acknowledge the truth of the gospel is hard. I know that you wrestle with it, and, and maybe you're a believer, but you're wrestling with other things, hardness of your heart, and there a, comes a moment when the truth is there, and you know what to do, and you just got to say, I trust that there's going to be something precious and glorious on the other side of this, even though it's painful right now. And if you will just let go, and you will just acknowledge the truth and trust him, I will tell you, you will not be disappointed. Do not harden your heart if you hear his voice today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together. First and foremost, Father, I thank you that you are so patient with us, that you continually to put truth in front of us, that you reveal truth to us. Father, I pray for those here today that have not been transformed by the power of the Spirit, have not been born again, as Scripture says. Father, I pray that you will Lift the burden of their eyes. You'll remove the callousness of their heart. You'll let them not just see the truth, but respond to it. And then you'll renew their heart. You'll give them a heart of flesh, and you'll take away the heart of stone. Father, today may be the first day of the rest of their life gloriously in you, in Christ. And Father, for those of us that are believers, Father, we still struggle. We still have sin in our flesh. And so, Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that gives us power over it. But Lord, help us to give in to the Spirit and not to the flesh. Help us to put the deeds of the flesh to death. Help us to kill it, mortify it. Help it to be a priority in our life. While at the same time, Father, we know that for those that are in Christ, we are not under condemnation. So let us rejoice that we are not condemned. We will not suffer the wrath. But Lord, help that truth and that beautiful truth not keep us from going to war against the flesh and to try and kill it. Because in doing so, we are bringing you glory and honor. And we're showing you that we want to be more like you and that we love you and you are the priority in our life. Father, help us not to harden our hearts when we hear your voice. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.